Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Leslie McClurg in today for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Greta Thunberg transfixed the world in 2019 when she condemned global leaders for their inaction on climate change. The 16-year-old environmental activist is one of thousands of teen girls who've agitated for social change. From Claudette Colvin, who refused to give up her seat on a segregated Alabama bus, to Mabel Ping Hua Lee, who led a march for women's suffrage. These stories and more are covered in Maddie Kahn's new book, Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. Girls are especially capable activists, according to writer and editor Maddie Kahn, even though their efforts are really often very underappreciated. We'll talk about the teen girls who have sparked labor, civil rights, and environmental movements. These efforts, these girls do, that put, often put themselves in very dangerous situations. And they, as Khan writes, their identities and they put their futures on the line. Maddie Khan is the former culture director, culture director at Glamour, where she focused on women's issues. And her new book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. Welcome, Maddie. Thanks for having me. So books often take years to write. So why did you dedicate years or what inspired you to dedicate probably years of your life to write about teen girls who are activists? Yes, years. Uh, that's definitely true. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways I started working on this book uh, without even knowing that I was doing that. Like you said, I worked at Glamour, and before that I worked at Elle magazine. And the lucky thing about working in women's magazines and women's media in general is, unlike a lot of other people, you learn to take young women seriously really early. And I feel like in those jobs, I just came across so many incredible young women, interviewing them, spending time with them, profiling them. Uh, I did profile Greta Thunberg for Glamour, and I spent time with other young activists involved in March for Our Lives and, um, you know, all kinds of social movements. And I think in the beginning, I thought, you know, I need to ask myself the question of what's going on with this remarkable generation of girls. And when I first started to conceive of the book, I thought, Maybe this will be a book about Gen Z, about this next generation of young people who are so active, so socially aware, so good at movement building. And then as that idea kind of started to take shape, I started to do more research and it became so clear to me this is actually a very old story. So I spent many years on the research part of this, just familiarizing myself with what's out there and, and some of the earlier girls that you read about in the book. Um, and then, yeah, I started writing it um, in 2020, and three years later, here we are. 
Well, let's go before we go back in time and talk about many of the women who I've never heard of in my, in my life. You went back quite far and many surprising, inspiring stories. Let's just hear a little bit from Greta Thunberg. Uh, she, again, was the 16-year-old environmental activist that really shook up the world. This is all wrong. I shouldn't be up here. I should be back in school on the other side of the ocean. Yet you all come to us young people for hope. How dare you? You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And yet, I'm one of the lucky ones. People are suffering. People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction. And all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? What did she accomplish, you know, giving these speeches? What do you think her ripple was into, you know, creating some change? I know. I mean, for years, activists and scientists have been talking about the threat of climate change. And partially, I think, you know, we're, we're all more aware because we're living with more and more obvious consequences of human-caused climate change. I think what Greta Thunberg was able to do, though, and what uh, young women in activism have done for centuries is call attention to the issue in a much more personal way. I mean, when Time named Greta a person of the year, they said that she had done something that generations, you know, a decade of scientists and activists hadn't been able to do, which is to make the issue feel urgent. And I think one of the ways that she did that was, like you heard, you know, by invoking her childhood, by saying, it's not fair that I have to do this. And, and I write in the book, and I feel strongly that one of the most powerful ways that girls can mobilize people is by invoking their girlhood, their childhood, and talking about the consequences of adult inaction, how it forces children into the public arena. And that often is very persuasive. I mean, I find it kind of moving and a little sad, too, to hear the raucous applause at the end of her speech. You know, she doesn't want applause. That's not what she's asking for. She's asking for action. And I think that tension is something that comes up again and again in the book. Girls are such excellent communicators and are such good messengers for these causes. And then often when they want to be met with a movement in response to what they do, they're met with applause. And that is part of the difficulty, I think, of being a girl activist. They're so good at, at drawing attention to a cause, but you know what they really want is for people to follow behind them and mobilize around the issue. I have a list here. It's like single space, several pages of, of various examples that you highlighted in your book, but of, of women of you know all different times of history. Who was your favorite? Who sort of resonated or sticks with you when you, you know, talk about your book that is an example that you like to highlight? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. I, I think one of the stories that I come back to a lot because I feel like it speaks to what I was trying to do with the book is actually in the first chapter, the Lowell Mill Girls. So these are young people living at a time before the term teenager exists, before we have an, even an idea of adolescence, uh, which as a term gets coined actually a few decades later. But these girls who were working in textile factories in New England, away from their families, earning money for the first time, spending money for the first time on, you know, all the things that teenage girls like to spend money on, clothes and watches and their education um, and books, for sure. 
are starting to do this thing that I find really magnetic and exciting, which is they start to actually conceive of themselves as a cohort. I think that's one of the powerful things about reading so many of these stories in a row and researching them in a row was to see over and over again throughout the generations the power that comes when girls realize we are our own class and there's something that we can do together. I love the stories, obviously, of exemplar exemplary girls um, and standout girls, but I love the Lowell Mill girls because they really show what's possible in collective action. What what did they do? What did they accomplish and what were they fighting for and how old were they? So the youngest of them were 10, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, and the older ones were 19, 20, in their early 20s. Um, these were girls sort of in that, in that time that hadn't yet def- been defined yet between girlhood, uh, childhood, and, um, you know, their anticipated marriages and womanhood, who went to work in textile mills that were just opening uh, in America and had been existent uh, in the United Kingdom for much longer before that. Um, And they were living in boarding houses together, earning a pretty decent wage, all things considered, especially in the beginning. And they were seeing their wages cut and the cost of their boarding houses go up. In the end, um, the combination of those two things basically amounted to their wages being cut in half. And they decided to stage a walkout, um, the first sort of mass consciousness labor movement event uh, in the U.S. and and certainly one of the first labor unions. Um, The girls write their own constitution, complete with a preamble. They have their own magazines. They have their own organizing techniques. Um, The first woman ever to deliver a public speech in Massachusetts is one of the Lowell Mill girls speaking at one of their strikes. It's interesting that you ask what did they accomplish because in some ways the answer is nothing. Um, The strikes were not successful and a lot of the girls lost their jobs. They moved on. The mills were always sort of in the beginning this transient workforce because it was always expected that the girls would come for a few years. Um, One of the people who visited, I think Anthony Trollope said this and a few others said they conceived of it as a manufacturing college. Um, It was almost a form of higher education for girls who weren't going to go to university or pursue higher education otherwise. Um, So the strikes technically didn't work. Uh, And one might think, why in the world would you start a book about girl activism with a story that comes to no great end. Uh, I love the story because I think one of the things young people struggle with when they do activist work is that first failure can feel so devastating. Like, what's the point of going on and keeping to do this if it's not going to work? And I think for a lot of the girls who walked out, who were on strike, who wrote this like very optimistic constitution and then saw it not come together the way they had planned, it did feel really heartbreaking. Um, But there is a moment much later in the book, like 150 pages later, where uh, at the beginning of Second Wave Feminism, the New York Times is reviewing two new books that collect anthologize the works of the Lowell Mill Girls. And it's no surprise to me that when feminists were talking about how to articulate their own feelings and to think about what it means to express yourself and be heard as a woman, they reached all the way back through time to the Lowell Mill Girls and to their writings and found so much inspiration there. Uh, And I think that's one of the things that is necessary in writing a book of history is to talk about the fact that what can seem like a failure in the moment can reverberate in ways you can't possibly expect decades later, generations later, and certainly the women organizing for women's liberation saw a lot of what they were fighting for in the example of the Lowell Mill Girls. And I just love to think, you know, that it felt like a failure to them. And then years, years later, it looked more like a success. 
Do you think, you know, the sort of chuspa that that young teens, the kind of vim and vigor uh, that young activists have, do you think either these failures or what happens? Why do we sort of lose some of that? I I know, you know, in my mid 40s, I don't have the same drive, the same passion, the same even belief that I could change the world that I did when I was a teenager. So what, what are your thoughts in terms of why teens are so powerful in this way? Yeah, well, it helps to be young. It helps to not have encountered a world that is unforgiving. Um, it helps to think in black and white, which I think a lot of adolescents do. In a lot of ways, I think that accrues to their advantage. You know, to have to be so single-minded about what's right and wrong. As soon as you start equivocating, as we all do when we get older and we start compromising, which we must to succeed in every other part of our lives, it becomes harder to, you know, lay down on the street for something that you believe in because you can always kind of see the other side. The great thing about being a teenager is you don't really see the other side. You see things the way you think they should be and you're willing to do whatever you can to fight for that. I mean, I think some of it is practical stuff. You know, in the civil rights movement, people talked a lot about how young people mobilized in part because they didn't have jobs that were threatened by participating. They didn't have families, you know, children that they were worried about uh, what might happen to them for, you know, the supposed crime of participating in movement work. So the risk in some ways is lower. Um, I also think uh, to, to go easy on yourself uh, <laughs> and for all women listening to go easy on themselves, one thing that I'm interested in and one thing that became clear to me as I was working on this book was that some of the qualities that we really love to see in young women and even just thinking back to the speech that Greta Thunberg gave that you played earlier, that passion, that emotional quality, I mean, you can hear her voice mm-hmm. wavering in that speech. You can hear she's on the verge of tears. I think if you're, you know, if you're a feeling person that arises in you some level of compassion and empathy. I think if you've watched a woman run for president, for example, or try to be a boss or run a company, you know that you open yourself up to incredible criticism if it sounds like you're too emotional or you're wavering or you might cry on stage or you might lose control. Those qualities that we find so addictive in girls are qualities that we don't always respect in women. And that makes that kind of activism harder. Absolutely. We're talking about girl activists, really the unsung contributions girls have made to major social movements in the United States and the unique qualities that girls bring to activism and the costs and risks that they bear. We're talking with writer and editor Maddie Kahn. Her new book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. And we'd love to hear from you. Who are your, who are the girl activists you admire? Give us a call right now. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We'll be right back after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim, and we're talking about girl activists, the unsung contributions girls have made to major, major social movements in the United States, and really the unique qualities that girls bring to activism. We're talking with writer and editor Maddie Kahn. Her new book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. And we want to hear from you. Who are girl activists that you admire is there you know, a story that you have that you'd like to share with us about someone you know? Maybe you were that girl activist and you want to sort of toot your own horn, or maybe you shy away from activism. Tell us why. Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum, or give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Robert writes, thank you for playing that searing clip of Greta Thunberg. We adults would do well to talk less and listen more to the clarion calls from the young leaders like her. Beautifully said, Robert. Uh, I'd love to to move to a, a different moment in history Um Maddie, you devote a chapter to a young Philadelphia abolitionist. Her name is Anna Elizabeth Dickinson. She's also known as the American Joan of Arc. And the chapter is called The Mouth on That Girl, (laughs) sort of heightening her outspokenness. Who, Who was she and what did she do? Yeah, like you said, she was the daughter of Quaker abolitionists. She grew up in Philadelphia. Um, She had sort of an accidental fall into activism. She uh, went to um, a lecture being given in Philadelphia. And I think just for context, it's helpful to remember lecturing was like the the Taylor Swift era's tour of the day. There were so many incredible orators who people wanted to hear speak, sold out auditoriums, like picture the biggest rock stars. Um, and there were these orators, and a lot of them were talking about abolition and women's rights. And there was a lecture on women's rights, and a father stood up to say, in essence, you know, I I totally believe that men and women are equal, but my daughters are going to, you know, stick to the domestic sphere because that's really where they belong. Um, and Anna, who was around 16, was highly offended by that. And she stood up um, and countered him in his face. It's said that she was so vehement that he actually fled the hall in embarrassment. Wow. And she, yeah, she kind of became a star. Um, I think, you know, her example, again, is kind of one of those times where an activist also dips a toe a little bit into celebrity because she was going on tour, because she was giving these speeches. The Civil War broke out short, shortly after, and she uh, traveled up and down the country uh, making the case for abolition for the Union side in the war. She became, in her very early 20s, the first woman ever to address the House of Representatives. So picture Congress absolutely teeming with men, with politicians, and this young person who, uh, you know, we might think of your 20s as being a, a full-grown woman, but who's referred to in the press at the time as a girl, uh, standing in front of a podium, just not holding back at all, not only supporting the union, but also saying, in fact, that Congress hadn't gone far enough, uh, criticizing Abraham Lincoln to his face, who sat there, and news reports say he put his head in his hands as she was criticizing what she felt was his lack of boldness in pursuing this war. So that's the kind of person that we're talking about. Um, she was a you know, dedicated Republican, and just to remind everyone, the Republicans being the side uh, that fought for the Union, uh, and she uh, spoke in, on behalf of them in elections, um, had this really illustrious career. And then, as happens to so many girls, she did grow up and she found a lot less success. And to replicate that feeling of power that she had had as a girl proved really, really difficult. 
What did the people who published her story, what, what did they risk sort of putting her story out there? I mean, at the time, you know, to be told off by a teenage girl, I don't think it's something that everyone even embraces today, let alone in the, you know, in the 1800s. Um, I think that they also were aware, and I, I think it it shows a surprising self-awareness. They knew that they were putting a really, really big spotlight on a really, really young person. I mean, to be an abolitionist at all, you're risking bodily harm in some cases, real threats. One of the people who published her had to hide because an angry mob was coming after him, trying to kill him. So these are life and death situations, and I would never want to minimize that. I think the girls who became involved in these movements often understood the risks better than we give young people credit for in general. They knew what they were doing. But I think it's the attention that some of the people who published her worried about. Uh, they felt, you know, some one person compared her to an elephant being made to cross a bridge to see if it's strong enough for the people to follow and to carry. They were these kind of test cases um, who were trotted out and, and, you know, put under a spotlight. And sometimes the glare of that became such a burden. And I think in the case of Anne Elizabeth Dickinson, that was certainly true. She had this blazing career, and then she really struggled to find her footing and her voice as a woman. I love that image of an elephant crossing a bridge to see if yes. it's strong enough if the rest of us can follow. But what what incredible courage to, to attempt to cross that sort of shaky bridge. Absolutely. Let's, let's bring uh, callers into the conversation here. Patricia in Oakland, uh, you're on the air. Hi, good morning. I'm part of a group called the Thousand Grandmothers for Future Generations. And we started working on the environment because we're mostly great grandmothers who know the legacy that we're leaving for our grandkids. And what happened through the course of our work is that young activists started to appreciate what we were bringing, and we were recognizing their leadership very actively. And so we ended up putting ourselves between the police and young folks when they were leading the big actions that were happening around the Bay Area before the pandemic. Um, we've been a little bit quiet because of the pandemic, but we're reemerging. And I think that when old people recognize the leadership of young people, it's an affirming process for both. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's been a really sweet connection between young environmental activists and environmental justice folks and the thousand grandmothers. It seems to me that, you know, both generations have so much to learn from the from each other. Would you agree, Patricia? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think for some of the grandmothers that was a surprise. <laughs> I think our expectation was that we had a lot to offer. And I think what we've what we've learned and are continuing to learn is that they do, too, and that we're we're both enriched by these exchanges. Absolutely. Thank you so much for calling in today, Patricia. Uh, let's bring Tom into the conversation. Tom and Los Gatos, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning, Leslie, and thanks for taking my call. Excellent program, by the way. Uh, yeah, when I was, I was just trying to think of who the most courageous uh, young woman of the 20th century was, uh, even into this century, outspoken, articulate, compassionate, concerned with the environment. Uh, I couldn't help but think of Jane Fonda and her famous trip to uh, North Vietnam, where she not only, you know, toured schools and hospitals and, 
uh, libraries and so on have been bombed by massive bombing campaign of the U.S. Uh, Air Force. Uh, but she also was concerned with the environmental damage uh, the massive bombing campaign caused Agent Orange, uh, you know, nervous conditions and other uh, serious mental conditions for uh, women and children. Uh, animals, you know, have also been terrorized, you know, the wild animals, farm animals, uh, pets, kitty cats, doggies by the massive, uh, cruel, piratous American bombing campaign. And she's been courageous ever since then, always been outspoken and uh, leader in society. So I think Jane Fonda actually deserves uh, the top medal that our country could give. Even the uh, Medal of Honor is not really good enough for her. And, you know, I like Greta Thunberg, not just because I'm Swedish-American, uh, but she is uh, so brave, too, and outspoken, kind of a young uh, Jane Fonda. And also, I'd like to thank the Swedish people for not joining uh, NATO. They made the right decision. Uh, they've become just as militaristic and stupid as we are with all our perpetual wars. Well, thank and, you, Tom. Uh, anyway. <laughs> I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. And, you know, I'm curious... Uh, Maddie, what do you think? I mean, someone like Jane Fonda is an example, actually, of, of someone who is quite passionate at a young age and has been able to maintain that legacy. Are there some examples in your books of people who didn't sort of flame out? You know, you did talk about the glare can be so bright that they have this voice as a teenager, but that it might fade that strength as they get older. Are there some examples of folks that that isn't the case? Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to say to Patricia's excellent point, I mean, I wish I could play a recording of that everywhere I go to talk about the book, because people often do say, you know, what is the solution to the problem? And it really is a big problem of burnout among young activists. And of course, I think anyone who's tried really hard to do something hard can understand how that happens. And I do find that the answer really is intergenerational partnership. I think older people do have so much to offer, especially perspective, maybe most of all, just seeing things change and progress over time, even when a small setback or a large setback feels like a real devastating blow. And young people obviously bring so much energy, um, so much purpose, such a sense of uh, responsibility to movements that I do think that that is one of the big solutions in terms of people who were able to keep it going. Um, I think what's really interesting to me about the turning point of civil rights and then second wave feminism and women's liberation is those movements actually fought for the idea that you could keep going, that you could, you know, be a girl who was passionate and grow up to have a career of any kind, which would include activism. That was the point of giving women more choices, making clear that the way that we think of women's roles in society is way too circumscribed. And, and part of including that meant and fighting for that meant making room for more activists to continue in the work that they do. One of them that comes to mind is Heather Booth, Heather Tobis, um, when she was young, who was a civil rights activist who then became heavily involved in women's liberation and started what would become Jane, which is the abortion service that operated out of Chicago. Uh, in the beginning, women worked with uh, one doctor to provide abortions to local women who needed the procedure. And then in the end, they actually learned to do the procedure themselves and cut the cost and kept providing that service to the community. Jane only disbanded because of the past, uh, because of Roe v. Wade's being decided in the 1970s, um, the service wasn't needed anymore. I think a lot of people think back to Jane and, and think about whether that kind of an organization is needed again. She stayed in activism her whole life. Um, when I spoke to her for the book, she said, 
you know, there's there's room in her basement uh, in D.C. where young activists continue to take up residence and have a have a place to stay as they do their organizing work. And one of the things she told me about staying in it, you know, as Jane Fonda did and does, and so many others have since, is that she kept finding ways to be useful. That one of the mm-hmm. things she asked herself is, is there something for me to do here? Is there something for me to offer? And as long as that felt true... Um, she kept feeling motivated. And so I think, yeah, that question of like, what do I have to offer? The older I get, what else can I bring to this process to organizing? And sometimes what you can bring is just the fact of your presence and your tenacity uh, showing people that that remains possible. She had kids, she had a husband, um, you know, her life became busier, but activism always had a role in it. Uh, and I think she has given that to a lot of people. And then I think of people like Dolores Huerta, you know, she's in her 90s, she's still doing it. So those people are out there. But I'm always very moved to think about some of these critical movements of the 20th century that by fighting for them, you know, young women were also fighting for their own futures, for the chance to be able to keep doing this, keep trying to make the world better. I remember an interview with Gloria Steinem, an interviewer, asked her, you know, what, what keeps you going and why do you keep doing this? And her answer was so simple. She said, it feels good to make change. And when she goes to, you know, the various events, she said, it just feels alive to be there. So may we continue to feel that. Let's bring one more or another conver- another caller into the conversation. Uh, John Vincent in San Francisco. You're on the air. John Vincent? Yeah, hi. Um, two things. There are two American heroes who lost their lives in the Middle East, standing up for what they believed in. I'd like to see them nominated for a Nobel Prize. One is Rachel Corey, who lost her life standing up to an Israeli bulldozer. And then there's Caitlin Mueller, who um, was, well, with the uh, freedom fighters in uh, Syria. And she got kidnapped or taken by ISIS and forced to, you know, marry one, one of them. And she was killed an American um, airstrike. And the second thing, you're talking about making change. And I remember years ago, me and this woman, we, you know, looked at everything differently. I thought, gee, we should take an afternoon off and figure out who's right. And then I had that thinking feeling, oh, my God, what if I find out I'm that she's right and I'm wrong? <laughs> and then I thought, I have nothing to to lose. I mean, finding out I'm wrong is only finding out how I can change and become right. That's really and beautiful. I, have nothing to, I mean, if people... I think, you know, John Vincent, I think that's really beautiful. We, all, we only that. have... We only have, uh, you know, something to learn by listening to, you know, what we could potentially learn here. I think it seems yeah. like that that open mind yeah. is is really, yeah. you know, uh, Maddie. What do you do? You, are you familiar with either one of these stories highlighted by John Vincent? These two women. Well, people always ask me, um, you know, if, first of all, if there's going to be a, a second volume of this book. And, and I think uh, it was hard, you know, to narrow down the stories that I included in the book. And one of the ways that I did that was by focusing geographically on just the history of my own country, of America, which is not to say that uh, – 
and 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 including Greta, mostly because she has motivated so many people here uh, and has spent time here advocating for the causes that we've talked about. But there are many, many, many more volumes of this book to be written by other people uh, who know their own histories, you know, better than I know them. And I would love to see those books written. The story of of girlhood activism is a global story. Absolutely, I think if you know of the existence of people like Malala and, um, you know, all uh, people who fought for women's education, girls' education, who fought against climate change uh, in their own countries, who have taken up all kinds of causes for peace and democracy wherever they live. This is a story that's happening all over the world. I needed a limiting principle, um, as my editor can attest. Uh, somewhere out there, Emily, uh, thank you for being patient with me. There were even more names in this book in the first very lengthy draft. And uh, you need to one needs to cut it down hard as though as as it may be um but i think yeah this is this is a global story i think what makes girls special and what distinguishes their activism is true in different ways and unique ways all over the world um and i i await those other books absolutely just quickly before we go into a break who, who was yulala just because you mentioned that to Malala Yousafzai, um, the Pakistani amazing um, advocate for women's education who uh, was shot um, in the head, actually, by the Taliban and miraculously survived and has remained an outspoken advocate for girls' education all over the world. I think when we see what's happening to girls in Afghanistan, when we see how Iranian girls are fighting for their education, we know that her work is not finished yet and that so many other girls around the world have picked up that mantle and kind of run with it. Um, to, to demand knowledge as a young person, as a young woman, I think in particular, is one of the most potent and radical calls for action that we can possibly hear and, and try to make possible. That story of Malala getting shot in the head, I mean, just that vision, even saying it is just so searing. We're talking about girl activists, the unsung contributions girls have made to major social movements in the United States, and really the unique qualities that girls bring to activism. We're talking with writer and editor Maddie Kahn. Her new book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. And we want to hear from you. Who are girl activists that you admire? Maybe you're one of them. Tell us your story. Or maybe you shy away from activism. Tell us why. Or what are the qualities that really make a great activist? What do you see around you? Email your comments and questions to forum at kqed.org. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Call us now. We'll be right back after the break. We'd love to hear from you. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in for Mina Kim today. And we're talking about girl activists with writer and editor Maddie Kahn. Her new book is Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions. And I want to bring a caller into the conversation now. Uh, Peggy in Sebastopol, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to talk about Medea Benjamin and Code Pink. Um, in terms of someone, Medea Benjamin was early on an activist in uh, SDS, Students for Democratic Action, and then she co-founded with her then-husband, Kevin Danaher, uh, 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 an organization called Global Exchange in San Francisco that was also uh, um, for for peace. And then in 2002, she founded... um, So this is decades on. She founded an anti-war, a feminist anti-war organization called Code Pink, which is still going on. So this is now two decades on. Uh, I think she's an example of a lifelong activist, and she that's an anti-war organization, and there is no harder kind of activism to go up against the, uh, the military-industrial complex, for lack of a, of a better word. And, and she's a good example of the qualities that you, she, she, she gathers people around her of, of younger generations also, and she, she understands how to collaborate. You know, it's difficult to uh, maintain, to be a, a long-term activist because you are, you are fighting. Right. So, so to, to be fighting and at the same time be collaborating it, you know, neurologically, it's challenging. <laughs> you know, Peggy, I think that's so perfect for the for the question that I was just going to toss to to um, Maddie, and, and that's those qualities that Peggy just pointed out. You know, that the fact that you can collaborate and endurance. What are the qualities that really distinguish, you know, sort of female activists, and how are those different than than a male activist? Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's important to say about the book is that I I would be the last person to believe that there's something innately, some innate set of qualities that, you know, girls are born with that make them better activists. One of the theories of the book is that girls are socialized in certain ways. Qualities um, are encouraged in girls that are maybe less encouraged in boys. I think of things like consensus building, uh, you know, getting people to collaborate. There's a reason that if you've ever been in high school and you've had to do a group project, there's a reason 
person you want a girl to be part of that. You know she's going to project manage the heck out of that thing, and she will make sure you meet your deadlines. Um, you know, these are generalizations, but I think it's true that you understand why girls do very well in school. Um, you know, they're encouraged to participate. They're encouraged to make sure that everyone, you know, feels good. Um, I think some of those qualities hold women back, in fact, in the workplace and as they get older. But as I write in the book, I think they make girls excellent activists. Um, you know, when I started doing this work and I was looking at climate activism in particular, I just couldn't help but notice that when I reached out to various organizations, um, and this was before I really started the book, this was first stories that I was working on at the magazine. Um, when I worked, when I reached out to young people who were doing climate work, I just heard back over and over again from girls. And in fact, when I was profiling Greta Thunberg for Glamour, I asked one of the activists in Europe, actually, I, I can't believe it. Like, where are the boys? Why am I only hearing back from girls? And she said, of course, boys and young men are part of this movement, and I would never want to belittle their contributions, which are so critical. Obviously, movements succeed when everyone becomes part of them. So that's so important. But she basically said, you know, the call um, to react to climate change is a call to consume less. It's a call to self-sacrifice in a way. And I think it doesn't surprise anyone who's been alive in America or in any country in the world to know that I think we encourage self-sacrifice a little bit more from girls, sometimes to their detriment. But as I said, in the case of movement building, it can be really useful. So I think those are some of the qualities. Um, and there's no reason that we can't foster those same qualities in a positive way in boys. And I think that's ultimately the goal, right? That we want everyone to, to take seriously the call of progress for this country and for the world. Well, let's go to uh, Chris in Kings County. Chris, you're on the air. So keep it quiet. Yes, good, e good afternoon, or rather good morning to you. I wanted to tell you uh, about a woman, and Medicon, you know, you may know about this woman already, but I think she's worth learning about. Her name is Debbie Sweet. When she was a 16-year-old, uh, because she had raised a lot of money to fight against hunger for the American Freedom from Hunger Foundation, Richard Nixon invited her to the White House along with a bunch of other young Americans to receive the Young American Medal for Service. And during his speech, um, he had the he had the uh, desire to criticize people who were protesting the war, and that was too much for her. And as he got to her to pin this medal on Debbie, Debbie said to him, quote, Mr. President, I simply cannot trust you until you end the war in Vietnam. Oh, he was flabbergasted. He couldn't believe it. He, he, his mouth opened and he couldn't speak. He turned around and he and his entourage left the room. And this, this girl is 16 years old. She's been organizing for hunger hikes for the prior two years and had done a great job. But to say that to the face of the President of the United States, it was all true, was astounding. So I thought you should know, if you don't know about Debbie Sweet, who continued to be active and is still active today, uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to include in in the next edition of your book. That Absolutely. gave me chills. Oh, that was such a good story, Chris. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, let's go to Lynn in Riverside. Lynn, you're on the air. Oh, hi. I've been really enjoying your, um, your conversation here. It was very inspiring. I, I have a very trivial one, but anyway, it was when we were in second grade, we went to school on a college campus, and so we'd have to walk across the campus. This was in the 60s, and so there were students out there protesting all kinds of things with their, their picket signs and all, and we really didn't know what was going on, but um, we'd see this every day. And one day we got to school, and at recess, there was our swings were gone. And we, we could see them across the street and down, but they had used them to lock up the business administration building. 
So, you know, we were pretty sad about that. It was something that, that, you know, seven-year-old girls enjoy their swings. And so the next day when they were still gone, we all got together and made our own little picket signs to bring our our swings back. <laughs> and it was something that the, the school paper covered, and then and then the um, the big the bigger city paper came in and and uh, had to had to take our pictures because I suppose little seven year olds with picket signs are darling. But um, <laughs> hey, our swings were back. Amazing. So we, Thank you so much, Lynn. That lovely story. Thank you so much for sharing. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Doug in North San Juan. Doug, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking the call. I wanted to call attention to um, a person who is in North Oakland, or in Oakland, rather, and she works with the homeless uh, wherever they are found in Oakland, getting them the necessary supplies and food and getting them to doctor's appointments and things like that. Her name is Signe Nielsen, and she can be found on Facebook. And I very much appreciate the chance to push for more support for what she's doing. She is a local activist in the trenches, very much in the trenches. So that's all I had to say. Beautiful, Doug. Thank you so much. I love these shout-outs to people in our community. Beautiful. Amy writes, Janine Benesit. Let me say this. Benius, excuse me, Janine Benius, started her ecological studies and writing at a young age decades ago in response to the disappearance of the forest meadow she spent her youth exploring when it turned into a housing development. She has gone on to light a fire in this movement all over the world with workshops and natural settings, teaching architects, engineers, designers to develop processes that mimic nature using sustainable materials. She travels the world to speak at conferences and has been recognized by famous eco-heroes. Thank you so much, Amy. And Beth has a question for you, Maddie. She asks, uh, knowing that Greta Thunberg is on the autism spectrum, I'm curious if any of the other young women in the book are on the spectrum. And are these young women creating a revolution or more of a movement? Good question. Um, I I have to say the answer to that is I don't know. I don't think that, to my knowledge, nobody else in the book was open about any diagnosis that they may or may not have. So I wouldn't I wouldn't want to speak for them. I think Greta has talked really persuasively about why being on the spectrum has been actually an advantage in her activism work and how she sees. Uh, the benefits of um, that identity, uh, how it comes through in the work that she does, which I think is great. I mean, I think the thing that I can say with 100% certainty is that many, many girls who are in this book talk about and feel strongly that their identities, whatever they may be, you know, their race, their background, their religion, their ethnicity, how those things became, you know, not just facts of their activism, but how they, you know, wielded them as tools. Um, And I think that that is what, you know, a lot of activists do, which is take every piece of themselves and marshal it in service of the movement work that they do. Um, In terms of the difference between a revolution and a movement, Part of the reason that I wanted to, you know, subtitle this book, The Girls Who Sparked America's Revolutions, is that I think particularly in this country, we are always sort of in a process of revolution. We have defined our national identity in terms of these revolutions, of calling America back to its um, earliest promises, of making those promises applicable to a wider and wider group of people. It's one thing to state your principles, and it's another thing, I think, entirely to live up to them, as so many of the girls in the book can attest. So for me, the book really is a series of revolutions, a series of people saying the status quo isn't working. We're going to break away from that. We're going to 
demand liberty in these various ways. Um, and one of the things that's just an Easter egg for the people who read the book is several groups of girls uh, in various ways. We mentioned one, the Lowell Mill girls write their own constitutions, essentially. I think that process of perfecting this country, of, of re-inscribing its ideals into paper and ink um, is a really amazing and patriotic process. And I wanted to give that credit to the girls who have done it. This is Forum. I'm Leslie McClurg. I'm in today for Mina Kim. And we're talking about girl activists, really the unsung contributions that girls have made to major social movements in the United States and the unique qualities that girls bring to activism. And we're talking to Maddie Kahn. She has a new book called Young and Restless. We're barely touching on, on the, all the stories that are in that book, so I highly recommend picking up a copy. And we want to hear from you. Who are girl activists that you admire? What are the qualities of great activists? Why do you shy away from activism? Email your comments and questions to forum at KQE. Or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are at KQED Forum. Or give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. A listener tweets, my daughters are not activists. I became a pro-choice activist in 1989 for the Canadian Abortion Rights Action League. I did not want my daughters to face an illegal abortion like I did in 1970 in Chicago. Thank you for writing in that. What do you think about, you know, how the, Maddie, how the Gen Z girl activists, how, how do they differ? You said they, they don't really differ at the beginning of our conversation, but are there qualities in the teenagers that you're seeing today that are really lit up about different social movements? Obviously, technology, social media is going to vastly change just the landscape in which girls who are activists operate. Uh, you can do things on the internet now that, that the girls who were fighting in the civil rights movement couldn't have imagined. Certainly, the low mill girls did not foresee Twitter and Instagram. Um, I give them a lot of credit, but not that much credit. So I think every technology um, that comes along one generation after the next changes a little bit of the field of uh, where activism happens. Um, I think one of the things that can be hard about that and certainly the girls I spoke to talked about this, is uh, it is really hard to shut out the rest of the world and do what you want to be doing and work in the field that you want to be working in because we are all constantly bombarded with so much information. I think that feeling of feeling paralyzed by just how much needs fixing is something that came up again and again in conversations with young people today. Um, and I think the data reflects that. I mean, we know that anxiety and depression are things that many, many girls, activists and not are dealing with. Um, and that's a really serious thing. In some ways, though, I think what I found um, and maybe one of the things that distinguishes this generation somewhat is that so many of them told me, uh, so many of these young activists told me that their activism was in fact kind of the tonic for those feelings of anxiety and depression, that being active, being in community, which often requires, you know, IRL in real life interactions with other people, really helped them deal with those feelings of alienation, isolation, depression, fear, which is such a powerful motivator for activism. I think that some people think, you know, we're putting way too much of a burden on our kids. And, and I agree with that. I mean, part of what I write about in the book is the sense that these are these burdens of saving the world are way too much for young people ever in any generation to bear. But I also think if you talk to young women, they will tell you that being active in their neighborhood, among their people, spending time with their friends and working on something that feels really important to them is a way for them to feel more connected, more in touch. Um, yeah, and more and more present in their own lives, which I think is a great thing.
Sean writes, I think all teenage girls are activists. They have to struggle every day against media, social media, cultural norms, and social institutions to forge their identity. Teenage girls have to be very strong. I want to acknowledge the activism in which all teenage girls participate. Well said, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Sean. (laughs) Nailaini writes, I think that all mothers who encourage their daughters to explore and venture out are activists. Their circumstances might not be conducive to explicit activism, but these mothers make activists out of their daughters. And and that inspires a question that I I wanted to pose to you, Maddie, which is, you know, do these successful girl activists typically have role models? Are their parents usually activists or, you know, relatives around them that that, that tend to inspire them? or, Or are they kind of born that way? I think a lot of them, yeah, have relatives, family members, and to the point of that that last comment, maybe not who are activists in an explicit sense, but so many of these young women can point to and do write about, you know, they saw their grandmother stand up to someone at a store, or they learned from their aunt to take themselves seriously as a young person and to learn and read and experience the world. Um, You know, in one case, Barbara Johns, who uh, stages a walkout of her own unsatisfactory high school um, and ends up being the only student-led case that fed into Brown View Board of Ed. Um, she had an uncle who was a pretty radical preacher who she learned from. I think you can kind of look back in the family tree and see these echoes. One of the things that I loved about writing this book is I think there's this narrative uh, of rebellion in adolescence, which of course is true and motivates a lot of great activist work. Um, you know, that that individuating is such, it's basically like a form of revolution in and of itself. And I think you see that throughout the generations. But what I loved was to see this continuance, in fact, across generations, that so often a young person, whether it was her parents or her grandmother, or like I said, an aunt or a cousin, they did see someone else out there doing something that seemed um, to be bucking the status quo in some way. And they picked up on that and that uh, consciously or not influenced their own activism. And I think that's a really important lesson because one of the things that I wanted the book to show is that no generation is starting from square one. You know, everyone's building on the work that came before them. So whether it's an actual family member or a spiritual ancestor, I think in some way or another, everybody's calling on the work of the people who've done this before them to motivate their own uh, quest for progress. A listener writes, don't forget the women of the Black Panthers. There is an amazing museum in West Oakland honoring the incredible work of the women and girls of the Black Panther Party. Good good last note to end on here. We've been talking about girl activists, really the unsung contributions that girls have made to major social movements in the United States and the very unique qualities that girls bring to activism and obviously the costs and the risks that they have bared for it. Many of these stories are in Maddie Kahn's new book, Young and Restless, The Girls Who Sparked America. America's Revolution. I highly recommend picking up that book. This Hour of Forum uh, was produced by Susie Britton. Thank you so much. And thank you to Danny Bringer, our audio engineer. And thank you, Maddie Kahn, for being with us and to all our callers and, and excellent comments for highlighting these really powerful and beautiful women who have contributed to these social change movements. Thank you, Maddie, so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. And we'll, we'll look forward to that second, that second edition of, of your book.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Soul to Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Soul to Story are available now.